These days, everyone is committing to tackle emissions, with many pledging to achieve net zero carbon by 2050 or earlier. But what are the complexities of the decarbonization journey in our logistics space and how far is the net zero go? Welcome to the first episode of JLL's Future of Logistics podcast series, where we discuss the pursuit of net zero carbon emissions with leading supply chain and logistics experts. I am Michael Ignatiades, and I lead the supply chain consultancy for JLL in Asia Pacific. Joining me today is Jerry Matthews, partner at Bain and director of Bain's Global Sustainability Innovation Center. He's a leading expert in sustainability ESG strategy and specializes on the decarbonization and de-risking of supply chain operations. So let's kick off. ESG has been viral for quite a few years now, you know, quite a buzzword, but the last maybe two or three years now, we've been hearing a lot about net zero carbon. So, so help kind of demystify what, what the net zero carbon is, what carbon neutral is, what's the difference? First of all, thank you very much for inviting me here today. I agree with you, it's a very important conversation. Most companies in the world have been dealing with carbon issues for many, many years. But as you very rightly said, it's only been the last two, three years that companies have been thinking about the different versions. Should I go carbon neutral? Should I go carbon net zero? And how should I do it? They're very distinct things. Carbon net zero is when a company decides to reduce its emissions, to stop emitting on carbon dioxide as much as possible compared to a baseline that may have said five or six years ago. Okay. Now, the truth is that no company can ever go to zero emissions. Very, very few companies would ever be able to do that. So you're always going to have a little bit of a balance that will need to become carbon neutral. And you do that through offsetting by buying credits or by using a carbon sequestration systems where you suck carbon from the air and you put it back in the ground and many other technologies. Okay. Now, in the initial term, companies were thinking of carbon neutral strategy. So how do I just offset my carbon emissions and I just keep doing what I'm doing already? Right. However, as regulations are coming into play, as stakeholder pressures require companies to come up with a strategy, the carbon net zero strategy has become the preferred pathway. In other words, truly reduce your emissions and move towards a transitioning of green operations. Okay, so, so I guess just being carbon neutral, you wouldn't stop what you're doing, right? If you're a big polluter, maybe you're still uh, polluting, maybe you can pollute even more, as long as you have the money to in exactly. a way, pay off your, uh, you know, your pollution in a way. Exactly, carbon neutral, you could basically continue as you are for as long as, but, things are going to change very, very soon. As mm -hmm. governments are introducing carbon taxes, as governments are introducing regulations which require companies to have a reliable and an action-packed roadmap towards carbon reduction, carbon emissions reduction. So carbon neutral won't get you very far, unless you really want to spend billions of dollars every year on paying carbon tax and, and carbon offsets. In going through this decarbonization journey, what have you seen? What are the differences between different sectors or different companies? Is it easier for some versus other companies? So for sure, companies with scale, it's a lot easier than companies who are more in the SME sector, let's say. Right. I would say some sectors, it's a little bit easier simply because their emissions are more concentrated, for example, in the scope one and two versus other sectors like consumer goods sectors that have more concentration in scope three, which is your suppliers and your customers. So there, there are some differences, but it all has to do with scale because mm -hmm. the transition and the, and the effort to transition to zero emissions is actually a very expensive, uh, both in terms of CapEx and OPEX uh, exercise. If you have the scale, then you can get the funding. If you have no scale, that makes it a little bit more difficult. Nonetheless, 
there is government action out there. There are new funding mechanisms and, and new ways to, especially from banks who have green loans and sustainable financing going on. Uh, so there are solutions for the small uh, companies or the medium companies as well. And you mentioned scope one, scope two, and scope three, which is, I guess, another kind of buzzword that, that we yeah. hear a lot. And sometimes it, it's hard to understand. So maybe you can share a bit more about that, maybe through an example. Let's say I'm a logistics company. You know, What would scope one, scope two, or scope three be right. for me? So scope one for a logistics company are the emissions that I create and emit within my own operations. So that would be my own warehouse, my own fleet, my offices, everything that I have under my full control. Scope two are the emissions that I create by using energy to run my warehouse, my offices, and my, my trucks. And so that could be electricity, or it could be a part of other energy I may have in uh, acquiring gas and, and so on. And then scope three are the emissions that are created through my supply base mm-hmm. or through my customer base. So that right. could be both my upstream suppliers, so everything I buy for the company to run from office supplies to MRO to other types of services, but also downstream if I'm using, if I'm a logistics company, I'm using a third party logistics or, or a partner in another market for their fleet because I cannot, you know, my fleet cannot have the capacity then those emissions are also attributable to me for the amount of usage that I have in there. So if, just as a, an example, if I'm a logistics provider based in Vietnam and I have operations in Cambodia, but not my own fleet, but I'm using someone in Cambodia to help me with deliveries, and say they allocate 20 out of the 40 trucks for my operations, mm-hmm. that 50% of their emissions for those trucks will be attributable to me. And I need to work with a supplier to help them reduce their emissions, so I reduce my scope three. Scope three is probably the single biggest challenge for any company to tackle. And in many ways, for our overall humanity quest towards net zero is the holy grail. Hmm. If we can solve for scope three, which is not an easy task, then we're on a very good path to meet our commitments from COP26. You mentioned before scale, so even for scope three, if you are a very big player, you are Walmart in the US, if your scope three is also net zero carbon, then basically all your suppliers, all your customers, then the whole ecosystem uh, gonna, is going to go towards Correct. that target. That, that's in theory. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not as easy as that. Because first of all, convincing suppliers to take the necessary measures to reduce their emissions it's not easy. And for some companies and some industries, those suppliers are small companies again. They're very small, right? It could be a 10-people company or a 20-people company, and they get all these different requests. So we do hear that even for the scale producers, for the scale operators, scope three, it's, it's difficult because you, you need to educate, you need to convince, mm-hmm. you need to find the funding to make it happen. It's still, still expensive, expensive in relative terms, so you need to find the funding to do it. And the most important part, you need to track it be able to say if I make progress. There are systems out there and tools to be able to track scope three emissions, both in terms of setting up the baseline, but also in terms of tracking over time the progress you're making. And at Ben & Company, we do a lot of work in in that space, both the baselining as well as the the tracking. We have the tools and have the system to to do that sort of an end-to-end. However, it's not not easy and Mm -hmm. it does require quite a bit of effort to, to make it happen. And, and it looks like scope three is a bit fuzzy in a way that it looks like it's a more of a voluntary way of how you define scope three, unless is there a specific audit company or is it a government function which 
can va validate or verify that this is indeed your scope three? There are companies out there and certification organizations that will come and give you sort of a, a verification of what you've claimed and, and what you've calculated. However, we're at a point right now on ESG in general that there isn't these sort of overarching organizations that can provide verifications and, and audits. Yes, there are certifications out there. In fact, there are many certifications yeah. out there. Um, but there isn't that sort of a global standard that governments or organizations all follow. And we need to have one. We need to have standard auditing, standard accounting uh, methods for carbon. We have to get there very, very soon. The path to get there, it's not easy, because as you can understand, when a big percentage of your economy is dependent and potentially could be harmed in some way by introducing carbon taxes, by introducing carbon accounting, as a government, Hmm. you're going to be a little bit skeptical on, on how fast you, you take measures and how fast you want to participate in a global accounting system for, for carbon and so on. However, as I said before, it's inevitable. Yeah. It needs to happen. It's been discussed repeatedly in COP25, 26, and again this year, COP27, it, it will be on the cards. So if we look at the, the real estate world, which has a bit of more of a, a long-term mm -hmm. view, uh, how would you suggest an investor in real estate? What would be the things that they would need to you know, take into account looking into what you see from your work with, with uh, other clients? As a really sane investor, for sure, you need to realize that uh, your stakeholders, who could be you know, your investors, your owners, your customers, for sure, they also have carbon emissions and carbon ambitions that they have set. So if I'm an office user, I hire a space in an office, and I want to be in a building that's green because I'm also reporting my own emissions. For example, my company, Bain & Company, we are the world's first consulting company to be net zero. In fact, we're carbon negative, so we actually emit a lot less than, than the carbon the offsets that, that we buy and, and the, the reductions we have made altogether. And a lot has to do because many of the buildings we are renting for our offices are actually very, very strict on, on the criteria that we need to, to adhere with mm -hmm. um, in terms of green buildings. And that will be your scope three because you rent Exactly, that, so that's even, our scope yeah. three, but it's a big chunk of our emissions as well. So yeah. every new Bain office that we're opening, um, it needs to meet that criteria, which for some parts of the world, it makes it a little bit difficult to find space mm -hmm. because uh, some parts of the world are not uh, kind of there yet. Yeah. So as a real estate investor, especially in the logistics space, I would say, having a clear roadmap in two parts. One is about greening your existing real estate um, and how you, you transition it to, to net zero, basically, or to, to reduce the emissions. And, and there are ways to do that. There are technologies that we call no regret, things you can already do today, installations, lower energy lights and, and systems and so on. Um, technologies that will be coming to the market, let's say in the next four to five years. Yeah. So the question there is, how do I scout for these technologies and start putting them into my radar. Maybe invest in some of them yeah. or co-fund, co-invest and so on. And then there is the final part of the tail, let's say, for technologies five years away, which are still at the early stage, prototype or still to be developed, where you want to, to, to invest potentially, you, you got to keep an eye. It's a continuous effort and needs to happen very systematically uh, over time uh, by a company. The second thing I want to say, of course, for a real estate developer is your new buildings. So there, there's nothing better than starting a building that will meet all the criteria. But then that's where, for some of our real estate uh, clients, we advise them to take what we call a future back type of uh, thinking. So if you can make your developments and, and design your developments, 
with a future back lens. In other words, if we were 10 years ahead, mm. what would be the technologies we want the building to have? What would be the design we would want to have? How the world would have changed? There are many ways to do that and, and we have um, the tools and the approaches to do that to then try and get the design as close as possible. Now, of course, we understand that maybe the perfect building with a future back lens is 10 times more expensive yeah. than, than it would be today. And that's where you need to start thinking about, okay, how much is it worth investing today yeah. for requirements, regulations, and policies that will come in the future? So yes, it might be looking as an extra cost today, but you should also look at it from like a de-risking for the future. In the logistics world, uh, world I mean, a standard warehouse by itself, the carbon impact is not that big, but once you have cold storage, then it goes through the roof. And if you start uh, charging uh, trucks, uh, if you have EV in an EV fleet, then that's gonna complicate your whole kind of uh, net zero carbon commitment. We've had these discussions with, with clients, uh, what's gonna happen in 10 years, right? If you build a warehouse and your tenants want to have an EV, full EV fleet, will your warehouse be able to accommodate that? So th this is why, again, the, the future back lens is very important here to be able to design with not just one or two years down the line, but you know, five or 10 years down the line. For example, many companies are trying to develop their own uh, renewable energy sources now, uh, where they, they invest their own money and their own resource to wind energy or solar, which is very popular, especially in Southeast Asia, for obvious reasons. But you also hear the same companies struggling because they haven't thought it through properly. Mm -hmm. So we have one of our clients uh, who is in the consumer goods space, but with very heavy distribution operations, and they're saying, well, we put all these solar panels and they create renewables that could give us up to 30, 40% renewable energy for our, um, for our operations. But we don't hit that number because we, we, we cannot store the energy and sometimes we have excess, right? right. And, and they want to go higher. And there's not the right synchronization with the grid uh, when it comes through. Mm -hmm. There's also the grid. Uh, if you're a large operation and you buy energy from the grid, the grid also gives you some sort of a quota that you need to consume per month for the rate and the cost and so on. Right. So you don't want to fall below that quota. So how do you balance that? And by the way, why can't you give some of your extra energy back to the grid? Well, you could, but maybe when the energy is there, the grid doesn't need it because it's you know in the middle of the day and the grid is already at full capacity, so it doesn't need the extra energy. Right. So that's where very specific solutions need to come into play. For example, this... Um, uh, example is about batteries. So battery storage uh, for are a very important step towards making renewable energy successful. Yep. And uh, battery storage solutions and technology, if we can solve for that yes. um, in the next few years, it, it's going to help us leap ahead in terms of our energy uh, constraints today. Because right now, our world works on the fact that I produce energy that needs to be consumed now. Yes. But the problem is we, we over produce, we underproduce. We're not always flat line. And a typical warehouse maybe works during the day and you get the, the sun so you can use that energy. But if you have automation and you want, want even during the nighttime for that warehouse to operate, exactly. you won't be able to, to meet that. Exactly. So during the day, your solar panels are overproducing towards what you need. So what you do is you either dispose that energy or you could be sending about the grid. Great. But most, most of them dispose it. But then when you really need it at night, because you can, to be your point, your, your AI systems could be working or your sorting systems, whatnot, then you need to go to the grid because there is no solar energy. But if you have a battery there, 
would have helped you to to keep it. So can can you share an example uh, where you have you looked at your one of your clients' supply chains and how did you approach that problem as far as net zero carbon? How did you help them define that strategy? There are four distinct steps when you think about decarbonization. The first step is you got to have an ambition uh, and an aspiration of what you want to to achieve. And that ambition comes in two parts. One, you need to have a corporate ambition, because that's what drives everything. So the corporation that owns the supply chain would need to say, by 2030, we want to be net zero, or by 2040, or in stages. 25% less, 2030, net zero by 2040. And then you need to be able to take that ambition and break it down to specific targets for your supply chain, because that has the importance you need to then communicate those targets within the company but also your suppliers. So everybody knows what the goalposts are and what mm-hmm. you're playing up against. The second step you do is you need to set up a baseline. So you need to be able to say, well, what am I emitting today? What's my carbon footprint? And that's where the accounting part I mentioned to you comes to play. There are platforms, there are tools today, and we use many of those uh, to help you do that in a very automated way. Even today, companies, most companies do it on Excel sheet. Right? So right. we'll go back and try to assume once a year, once every, every six months. And it's very inaccurate. It's very anecdotal in some cases. Yeah. And using proxies that are not really very scientific. So developing a baseline that is it's automated and, and it's accurate. Yeah. And if I said I want to be 25% less by 2030 or net zero by 2040, what's my gap and what I need to achieve? So you need to start developing a roadmap of the different levers that will help you reduce your carbon. So in other words, um, let's take the vehicle, for example. So fleet makes 20% of my emissions. Well, what are the levers I can use to reduce emissions from my fleet or even net zero? Well, electrification of vehicles is number one lever, right, and the most obvious. So what's the timing for that? What's the cost? And what percentage can I get it uh, across my fleet? Then you can look at uh, buildings and real estate. Well, what are the levers there? Well, there are a few levers. It's um, to do with insulation, with uh, cleaner energy, applying renewables, and and so on and so on. And then as you develop those levers, you need to develop them with a full potential perspective. In other words, levers that are already available today, electric vehicle, for example, Mm -hmm. in most cases they are, but also levers that may not be available today, but you need to put them there to be able to at least mathematically and theoretically get you to your zero target that you have in, in place. Then once you have that plan, you go to the third step, which is you cost it up because I can tell you for sure, it's not cheap. Mm. It's CapEx, OPEX, and it has been. And, and, and the reason why you need to cost it up in the right way because decarbonization is not a PL exercise. It's not something that says, well, I'll make a bit less profit in the next few years to make it up. It's a balance sheet exercise. It's actually both. But you got to have a strong balance sheet to do it. And frankly speaking, very few companies have... Um, that strong balance sheet to be able to carry it out. And actually, most companies don't want to risk their whole balance sheet just to do decarbonization, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Hence why today there are many funding mechanisms to be able to help you with that balance sheet approach and how to fund the transition to net zero. And then the final step is, it's really about tracking progress. And probably, in my mind, in our experience, probably the most important step. Because... If you cannot track progress, then obviously you don't know where you stand. But by tracking progress, it means what? Accountability. It means reporting. It means um, flagging when issues happen and and things just don't progress and you need to escalate or or find ways to to de-risk. 
And then very importantly, it allows you to create a story that you can use externally with your stakeholders, with your consumers, with your investors, uh, with the public and say, look, I'm making progress uh, and it's real progress. And it, 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 right now, many companies are issuing what we call sustainability reportings yeah. and they claim progress. But sometimes that reporting is not very clear. They, they will say, for example, we saved um, 1 million tons of CO2 from last year. But OK, is that good or bad? Is that you know, yeah. 5%, 10% yeah, of your base? Sometimes line? when it's absolute numbers, exactly. you don't know what it is, right? Exactly. And, and it's good that already there's a lot of effort done in that space, but as, as, as a corporate world, as humanity, we've got to become accountable towards yeah. our ambitions. Otherwise, it would be very tough to meet the, uh, the targets that we have set ourselves. Sometimes I'm a bit of a cynic, but do you think there's a lot or a little greenwashing happening out there? We see sustainability reports and some of them are a bit of a branding exercise and it's great, but you don't really know what's happening in the back end. What do you see really in the market? Is this greenwashing in a, an exception or do you think it's, it's happening a bit more than it should? It's very difficult for me to comment on greenwashing because, of course, nobody likes it and, and nobody wants it. But in some cases, uh, for better or for worse, um, it is a first step that most companies will take. Of course, we don't want to stay greenwashing. It's no value add. It adds, uh, you know, it has no benefits to anyone. And honestly... By now, even you know the least educated on ESG and sustainability will spot it. Mm. So greenwashing doesn't have a lot of life left into it. People can spot it. Investors, for sure, they can spot it. Yeah. Private equity companies, venture capital companies, banks, they spot it straight away. So there's no way, as a corporation, if you're looking for funding, you'll be able to get away with, with a sustainability report that you know, reads and feels sort of greenwashing. But then the public is also becoming a lot smarter about it. We just released a study at Bain & Company of consumers in APAC and their behavior and attitude towards ESG. And 68% of the people we interviewed, 20,000 people across 11 countries in Asia, they said that ESG is the number one concern uh, for, for the future. Um, and of that 68%, more than 80% said that going forward, they, they view their consuming habits the ESG lens. In other words, they want to buy more sustainable products and they actually do the research and they're actually willing to spend more to buy more sustainable products. So the consumer... If, if, if I may sure. be a bit the thing again, of course, in these studies, what we find is that sometimes you can say that I'm going to pay for the greener product, but when you're at the supermarket... You're spot on. You're, 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 <laughs> you're absolutely spot on because within the same study, we also did the, what is called the say-do gap. Sure. We, we went and talked to retailers and we did primary research okay. to find out what actually what they pay at the cashier versus what they intend when they go in the shop. And you're absolutely right. There is a say-do gap. But that say-do gap, it's not the responsibility of the consumer to close it. It's mm. the responsibility of the brands and the companies to, to close it through different ways of branding, different ways of communication. So th there's a lot to be done still, both from the retail and the consumer. But the, the bottom line, I guess, is that consumers are becoming a lot more aware. Right. And the interesting part is, from our side, we found out that Awareness level is the same uh, in terms of intensity across the demographics. It's not just a young generation, mm. it's not just the middle age or the you know middle of the life, but it's everybody. And and it's it was very surprising because there's a perception out there that Asia is behind uh, in ESG, but actually it's not. The Asian consumer is ready to to vote with both feet on sustainability. So we heard a bit about the benefits, but what are the risks? What if we don't do this? What if companies don't really uh, follow up their commitments? What are the risks for them? 
Well, I guess uh, if we take the more macro global perspective, the risks, we, we leave them every day in the news. The increasingly diverse as well as intense uh, climate-related catastrophes that we have around the world. Uh, so some of the problems and challenges and, and, and effects that we were seeing um, are actually really happening. And um, at least theory says, theoretically, they will increase. But if you're a company, if you're a corporation, what are the risks? Well, first of all, very soon you're not going to be able to insure your business or the insurance will be so high mm-hmm. that uh, it will make it impossible for you to, to do it. Because insurance companies, already they already see the effect that climate change has and they will not want to insure your assets. If your assets right. are close to the beach, they won't, be able, they, they won't insure it. Yeah. If your asset is within an area that could be affected by a drought, and there are a lot of scenario planning and, and models out there that can help with that, they're not going to um, insure it because it's most likely going to get on fire, right? If you have a heavy drought. If you're a company that doesn't have an ESG plan, a believable, yeah. actionable, and showing progress plan, then they're not going to believe your commitments and hence they're not going to go. So insurance is probably the number one impact that's going to have. And we already have examples around the world where insurance companies are taking stance. For example, if you, if you own buildings in some of these areas around the world that would be affected by flooding, like Miami, New York, and so on, already insurance companies will not um, insure your building or it will be very high premium. We already heard community has a very strong hand here. The second risk you see is, of course, loss of revenue. Mm-hmm. And profit, as a matter of fact, because to my point earlier, consumers are getting more educated and more aware and more demanding on ESG. So um, th- this um, say-do gap is going to be there for a little longer, but soon they'll start voting with, with their money and they will go for brands that stand for sustainability and they have a track record and they make progress. The third uh, challenge and risk is availability of talent. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the younger generation wants to work in sustainability. They want to be linked and they want to be related to a company organization that has a real true track record. And they also can see the greenwashing versus the, the, the reality of it. And then the fourth one, kind of linked a little bit to the first ones around funding. Mm-hmm. Banks will not want to give you loans and funds. There are already companies out there, especially in the energy sector, like coal and oil and gas in some parts of Southeast Asia, that cannot get loans and funding for banks anymore for capex investments uh, or they if they do they'll be very very high rate you know two two three times the the current the current rate so these are real life and and day issues that will pose real risks to to companies but of course as I mentioned before there are ways to to mitigate um, those yeah. risks and really the best way to mitigate that risk is to have a solid plan yeah with clear actions and one that you realize that it will lead to some sort of a transformation of your business, but you have the commitment from the management, from the board, and the executives to make it happen. So it looks like uh, the benefits are clear, the risks are clear, there is a way uh, forward, a structured way forward. So in a way, the logistics world, the supply chains are, you know, are what's connecting everyone and everything together. It looks like it's a, it's a one-way street for investors, developers, and the corporations who own or lease assets, that that's the way forward. Maybe if I can um, sort of uh, wrap this up in a, in a high note, the logistics and supply chain world uh, is playing a vital role in this transformation transition. First of all, logistics are very visible to the, to the public, mm. right? Um, logistics companies, whether it's a delivery of Amazon in your house or food from Red Mart or trucks you see on the street, they're very visible. If they start driving change, people will notice it. 
yeah. and it will have a very positive effect. Secondly, the, the transport sector, it does account for about 12-15% of emissions um, globally, in some cases even, even more in some countries. So it has a big effect and it has a big role to play there. And again, if we can put the front foot and, and make set the right example in the right pace, um, then that would be seen uh, as a great thing. And then the third thing, which I think is very important, is a growing sector. We're going to need more logistics and more yeah. uh, supply chains in, in, in the future, whether that is because of e-commerce, whether it's because we're more interconnected, whether because we're moving into a global trade system, which is more focusing on manufacture locally, produce locally, but sort of distribute versus you know, sort of the global supply chain we had in the past. In other way, we're going to move more things, we're going to buy more things in, yeah. in a growing world. So if we can do that in a greener way, it's only going to have a, a benefit. So on a high note, I think the logistics and supply chain area has a big, big role to play here. It could have a hugely positive impact. And for sure, it will be better for, for our planet and our uh, planetary commitments. And just to add on that, based on a survey we conducted across Asia Pacific, 70% of companies are willing to pay what we call a green premium. They were willing to pay 6, 7, 8% more uh, for a green uh, facility, for a green asset versus a brown asset. That's not surprising to me. Companies have their own emission targets they need to meet through scope three. Um, and hiring a building, of course, is part of your scope three. So if that is the cost you need to pay to get your emissions, then it makes absolutely sense. But I think also with in the B2B world, in the corporate world, th there may be a say-do gap. But when it comes to time to do it, and in some parts of the world like Singapore, where the rentals have gone through the roof, adding another premium, you know, to, to what extent would be possible, uh, it is. But it's a very, very positive and encouraging sort of survey, what you mentioned. When I talk with 3PL companies and they, uh, they're working on the... RFPs request for proposals for, uh, let's say, a CBG company that wants to lease uh, their space and, and uh, outsource their operations. Usually they have quite a few requirements. Cost is typically quite high there. And ESG is also important for them. Important for but them. But when it comes down, to, the it comes down to the selection of facility, that facility, at the end of the day, the end of that, the day, kind of ESG that kind of ESG requirement is, is, nice is, is a nice to yeah. have. Saying that, this is slowly changing. And from a uh, non-cynic point of view, we believe this is going to be the norm in norm. the near future. I agree to that. It's what we call part of the transition journey yeah. for, for companies to, um, to transition to SGs. Just let's hope we can go a little bit faster because uh, we have real pressing <laughs> issues globally we, we need to deal with and uh, decarbonizing faster would be helpful. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you very much for inviting me. You have been listening to the Future of Logistics podcast by JLL and I'm Michael Ignatiadis. Catch our next episode, where we'll discuss how organizations are working with transportation and logistics players to green the last mile. Thanks for listening.